This time on Poll Hub, immigration has been a galvanizing issue for Republicans for roughly two decades now. But during that time, no significant legislation has passed, even when Republicans or Democrats controlled the White House and both houses of Congress. Now President Biden is stepping into the fray and it's prompted us to take a look at American opinions about immigration over the past 20, 30 years. What's changed, what hasn't, and what are the odds it's gonna be different this time? Then we dig into how social media has shifted recently in ways that make it fundamentally different than when it began. Marist journalism and comms professor Kevin Lerner returns to the pod to help us sort through this. And we end with a fun fact from 1949, which should help rocket you into the weekend. Ooh, there's a tease. Stick around, let's get to it. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Barbara Carvalho. I'm Mary Griffith. And I'm Lee Marinkoff. So uh, President Biden uh, made his first visit since being elected to the border uh, earlier this week. And the White House has announced some changes to immigration policy. Immigration has been this hot button issue, especially for Republicans. Democrats have somewhat avoided it for a large portion of the last 15, 20 years. There have been efforts by some moderates on both parties to try and find solutions to our immigration problems. And they've really amounted to nothing in that time. So a couple of things. In the 12 months leading up to last October, the Border Patrol encountered 1.7 million migrants trying to cross illegally. It's the highest number since 1960. So this is something, this is a big deal, what's happening on the border. Still, in our December poll, immigration placed a distant third in the list of issues Americans believe should be a top priority for Congress. And when Pew asked about immigration goals in August of 2022, a big majority kind of wanted it both ways. Increase security on the border and allow kids who came illegally, these are the dreamers, to stay. So looking back at all this trend data, and Barb, I know pollsters love trend data, there are signals here that not much has changed despite our decades of debates, but a few things have as well. What's, what's your read on this? Well, you know, I think I think what is interesting on the, the more things change, the more things stay the same uh, is that we have always had this tension um, in, in our history in American. Uh, uh, you know, except for, you know, indigenous people, we have all gotten here by some form of conveyance. Um, so this is part of the American fabric. Um, it is who we are. But each time we have these transitions and these influxes of um, in immigrants from different countries, and, and this has occurred when, we, you know, if you look at, if you look at each of the immigration waves in, in our history, this has always been the tension between the people, the people are here and the people who are coming. Um, and it has always caused this kind of upheaval um, and, uh, you know, tension, tension within, um, within our public, public debate and, and within our lives. So that said, I mean, historically, we, 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 have, we have seen these, these patterns before. And I think what's interesting is that polling, you know, once we've had polling, which started in the, kind of the early uh, 20th century, we can actually see um, how public opinion has not changed. Just the groups have changed. So, you know, in the, in the, in the 30s, you know, we're seeing the same kind of tension um, and concern about um, Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants and Jewish immigrants. And so um, as, as, we, as we look through the, the last century of polling data, uh, we see very, very similar uh, patterns. 
I think this is this particular time, as you point out, Jay, is different in the sense that we we had a administration, you know, over the period of four years that really constrained immigration and made the American border, particularly with Mexico, a major political issue. And so what, you know, we're seeing is almost as if it's a, you know, it, it's something that should have been happening over a number of years, kind of like what the pandemic did to the fact that none of us have colds anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, now all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're dealing with this, you know, onslaught of health issues. Um, I think we're seeing that kind of backlog of immigration over the border has become much more intense going forward. And and you're right to say that depending upon the issue and the circumstance, immigration is complicated and it hasn't been dealt with even when each party has been in power because there are so many uh, conflicting and complex issues. We see great support for DREAMers, but we see a lot of concern for immigration. And although it was a distant third in December, it was still a top issue for Republicans, particularly during the midterm elections. And Barb, you bring up that, t- that idea of the dreamers. Do you think that as we talk more about or we see more visuals of perhaps the children at the border, that public opinion may start to change? I know that that has been, that has happened past on other issues, but um, I believe that um, the number of children crossing the border without parents is at its highest since, um, I think, 2008. Do you think that that will be a tipping point for public opinion in some way? You know, in a, in a sense, I was very surprised that it actually didn't become more so during the, the Trump administration when there was a good amount of attention placed on youngsters and young people at the border and the issues that occurred you know, with dividing up families. I mean, we as not only a, you know, a country, but as a society and as a global society, are going to be dealing with the crisis that that caused for families for many, many years to come. I think, as I've sort of noted, it's cyclical. And so right now we're in a very, very intense period of time. I think people people think of the dreamers very differently than they do of the new immigrants. So the dreamers, I think, you know, have been you know, they're part of the fabric of America right now. They're not necessarily young kids either. They've been part of this this country now for, for decades. And so I think that public opinion is, is significantly formed on that. I mean, certainly that can change if there is, you know, a campaign to change opinion um, about that. But I think there's a sense among Americans that, uh, the dreamers are a special case. Uh, whether that translates into those who are coming now is a very, very different, different issue. Two things that stood out to me, uh, because Gallup has been asking questions about immigration for a really long time. And two things stood out to me that, again, point to this split you've been talking about. One is uh, all the way back in 1993 in July, they asked a question, do you think immigrants mostly help our economy by providing low cost labor or mostly hurt it by driving down wages? 28% thought it mostly helped in 1993. Uh, this was asked in 2019 and a bunch of intervening years. In 2019, it reached its highest level. 55% thought it mainly helped. So there's, I think, been this enormous shift 
uh, in American public opinion over this period to uh, recognize that immigrants have an economic impact that is not necessarily a bad one. And that was the great giant sucking sound of Ross Perot, you know, from 1993, right? That has been erased uh, to a large degree in American public opinion. On the other hand, they've asked the question for a long time, uh, do you think that uh, the way they described as large numbers of immigrants entering illegally, which is not just immigration, granted, is this a critical threat to the U.S.? That number has essentially remained unchanged from 2004 to the present day. They asked in uh, February of 2022 at between 50 and 48 percent, someplace in the high 40s. So I think it's interesting that in, in this period of time, when you look at this data, there are differences in the way that Americans are thinking about immigration. And there are things that are not changing, which gets back to the point, Barb, that you made, which is this has historically been a very fraught issue. We've we've swung wildly from one extreme to another, and it never seems to be it seems to be kind of a founding American thing. We're all immigrants and we're stuck on trying to figure out how many more we should allow in. One of the ways that we debate publicly important issues uh, these days is is through social media. And social media began as a great leveler. Uh, anyone could be there. Everyone could be heard. But it was kind of like what happened when we thought computers were going to give us a three-day work week. It didn't really work out that way. Uh, joining us today to talk about uh, all things media uh, is Kevin Lerner, Associate Professor of Communication and Journalism here at Marist College and author of Provoking the Press, More Magazine and the Crisis of Confidence in American Journalism, actually out in paperback this April. Congrats, Kevin, and welcome. Uh, thank you on both of us. So how did, how did we get into this mess? Uh, into the social media mess? Um, I, I think it's that uh, human beings are not very good at predicting the future um, for the most part. We, we tend to see these positives. And, and I think there were a lot of and, and still are a lot of positives in social media when it comes to uh, creating the national conversation which is, is really, I, I study journalism, and I think that you can look at journalism as a way of taking a conversation that you could have with a human being um, in a small group like this one, there are five people on this Zoom call, um, and expanding it out to uh, as big as a national or international um, conversation. But when you do that through the mass media, obviously you're getting that filtered through gatekeepers. Uh, the sort of utopian view of what was going to happen with social media is that this was going to be a leveler, that people were going to be able to have access to media in the same way that those gatekeepers did. Um, and in small groups, in small doses, that seems to actually be the case. And people who had been marginalized, who are not able to get their voices heard, have been able to do that. But of course, that's that's meant not just that people who've been unfairly marginalized um, have had more of a voice. It means that people who probably should be on the margins of society have been able to find each other uh, to find uh, support for fringe ideas and feel like they're not alone and therefore support those ideas uh, in a larger platform. We've seen a decline um, in, in institutions, um, you know, Throughout uh, throughout society, but probably the the biggest example of that um, is a media and our lack of confidence and trust uh, generally in the media. And now everybody kind of going into their 
own silos to kind of be, you know, preach to the choir. Um, how how has how has that impacted how we actually discuss discuss things? Um, I I tend to think. Well, I, I work as a historian, so I tend to think in much longer um, time frames. So there's a part of me that's not completely distressed, except on a day to day or week to week basis, when I see um, really awful fighting on social media, um, which is to say. It, the the mass media moment in the United States, that moment of consensus where everybody seemed to trust um, one kind of major source is really a historical anomaly. You know, it's something that really only existed for 75 years, maybe, which is a lifespan, but it's not um, it's not an incredibly long period of time in uh, in historical time. Uh, so I think we're probably readjusting to something a little bit more like norm. I mean, if we look at, at partisanship back into the, say, the 1820s and the time of Andrew Jackson, um, newspapers were not just biased, they were owned by political parties. And so uh, the way that people consumed media was very, very different a long time ago. Um, so I, I guess I don't see it as a, an entirely dire situation, but it feels that way where the only media system you've grown up with is a mass media system. And Kevin, when we look at social media, what do you think is the biggest issue, or the biggest problem? I mean, there's lots of talk about censorship. Are we missing the bigger problem or the bigger challenge? Uh, I think the bigger problem is self-curation. Um, social media is difficult because in the time of, of mass media, you could rely on somebody else to do the curating for you, to choose which kinds of voices you were being uh, fed. Uh, social media, whether that is algorithmic or whether it's self-chosen, is a much more difficult place to navigate as a human mind, right? Um, when I log into Facebook or Twitter or Instagram uh, or notoriously TikTok, um, there's an algorithm that is feeding, I never log into TikTok, so this is hypothetical, <laughs> uh, but a, uh, there's an algorithm that that's feeding me um, the things that it thinks I want to see. And so we get this increasingly intensified version of the things we are already like. Um, and that's, as researchers have shown, that's what tends to lead toward radicalization um, in social media. Um, you see increasingly more radical versions of views you already believe. Um, so I think that's probably one of the bigger problems. In the the social media that is not algorithmically pushed, um, there's a real problem of having to choose your own sources. In the early days of something like Facebook, that was easy. It was your friends, your friend's circle, your family. Those were the people who you saw and those were the posts you saw. Um, but then as, as Facebook started to deliver, develop and deliver its algorithm, um, you got to see a much wider selection of things. Uh, you know, after Elon Musk bought Twitter, there was a bit of a, a mass migration to this. It's not really a site, it's a, a network of sites called Mastodon. Um, and I, I have logged into Mastodon and it's a very different place because there is no algorithm. You are seeing things in real time, in reverse chronological order from the people you have chosen to follow, and then gets more complicated. Um, but you can actually start to see a slightly broader group of people. Um, 
but it isn't filtered in that same way, which means it's disorienting and it doesn't feed that uh, dopamine buzz in your brain of giving you want to see all the time. You just there's a little bit of a shrug. I don't know what this is, and I find myself, even though I'm probably more morally attracted to Mastodon and the people I have chosen to follow there, it feels like a less vibrant place because it's not as lively. There isn't as much new content being pushed at me all the time. And that's why those algorithms are so effective. Yeah, Kevin, one of the reasons we wanted to do this segment was because of Mastodon and Post Social and Hive on the left and Gabber and or no, Gab and Getter and Truth Social. I can't keep track of all these vowelless sites. But that, as you point out, as journalism, as we've moved away from the town square or the conventional kind of wisdom of journalism, where we all have a, we all watch Walter Cronkite and we all kind of share the same story, we've moved to a very uh, individualized or at least tribal kind of uh, way that we get news. That seems to be happening in social media too. We did a poll in December um, and asked about Elon Musk. You, you mentioned Musk taking over Twitter. 44% of Americans in that survey thought Musk buying Twitter was a good thing. 40% thought it was a bad thing, but a huge partisan split. 69% of Republicans thought it was good. Only 21% of Democrats uh, thought that. Is social media just kind of a lagging indicator or maybe not an indicator? Is it, is it just lagging where the media has moved over the last 10 years or 20 years where we, we pick what we want? to the news that we want, the information we want, the people we want to follow, and we live in our own like tribal bubbles? Uh, I think social media may actually be a leading indicator of that. Um, I, I think social media is partly what drove people to uh, sites that, or sites or news outlets that um, more closely reflect their worldview. Um, so I actually think social media is coming more quickly. I think the, the bigger concern for, for me with something like Elon Musk buying Twitter is that it points out, it points out that Twitter is not nearly as universal as the people who have loved Twitter uh, for the last 15 years um, have seen it to be, right? There, there seems to be a view among journalists and scholars that Twitter is the world, uh, that Twitter is a reflection of the actual conversation that is happening in the rest of the world. And having been, I, I haven't deleted my Twitter account by any means, um, but I'm much less active there than I have been, um, in, you know, in the last 15 years. Um, it feels like a shell of itself when I go back there. And it, it's, it has sort of exposed that Twitter is not this universal town square, um, to use the word you used. Um, it, it is one company that is providing one forum. Uh, and so I think ultimately the largest issue is a private ownership of the public conversation, uh, this town square being held entirely by private companies. Um, it, it causes a lot of problems, both because the government may choose to regulate it. They are private companies, but there are also first amendment implications. Do these companies need to abide by the first amendment? Are they in some way? common carriers. Um, and there are a couple of court cases working their way through the system now that may determine that, um, at least from a legal standpoint, if not a philosophical one. So, so what, Kevin, is, what's our future? What does our future look like? Uh, that, that's a difficult question to end on. Well, yeah, you started this by saying that, <laughs> that, people, that people are not very good about 
predicting the future. So as a historian, uh, uh, instead of looking back, uh, take us, you know, back to the future. Uh, well, but I think we can look to the future by in some way looking to the past, right? Um, yeah, I teach a, a class at Marist called The Press in America, which is really a history of how we got the media system that we have today. We start in the present and then, like you said, we, we rewind back to history and then work our way back up, looking at all of these moments when uh, there was a crisis in the media of some kind and things could have gone more than one way. You know, we, we didn't end up with the system we have because it is the perfect system. Uh, and I think anybody who's looking at that system knows that the system is not perfect or inevitable. Um, so I think looking at those crisis moments um, over the course of at least U.S. history, uh, what we find is there will be a stabilization moment. Uh, there is going to be a point five years, 10 years from now, where we can look back and see that all of this uncertainty was actually going to lead us to something. Uh, and what I tell my students is this is a great time to be a young person working in media because you get to invent what that future is going to be. So I know I'm skirting your question a little bit. I don't have one prediction except to say that I think we are going to have a new normal eventually. Um, but we don't know what that new normal is. And it doesn't feel like it when you're living it in the moment. Well, that's very optimistic and also very hopeful. So thank you very much, uh, Kevin, for joining us today. Kevin Lerner, who is Associate Professor of Communication and Journalism here at Marist. And uh, check out his uh, book coming out in paperback uh, this April, Provoking the Press, More Magazine and the Crisis of Confidence in American Journalism. Thanks so much, Kevin, for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Well, now, fun fact time. And a fun fact, which I'm particularly excited about because I actually know the answer, Okay, so here it is, Gallup, 19, <laughs> 1949, uh, Gallup asked a national audience of Americans, do you think that men in rockets will be able to reach the moon within the next 50 years, which would be 49 times 50, which would get us times to plus. 99. Plus, plus, Lee, plus. <laughs> no, we now, don't have to multiply it. What, what, 1999. No, it would have been yeah, 1999. Yeah, 1999. So uh, now I remember this happened about, oh, I don't know, in the 1970, right? 69, 70. 69, yeah. Yeah, so it happened. However, at the time, in 1949, Americans, 70%, 70 I'm sorry, said, no, it would not happen. Only 15% said it would, and 15% didn't have an opinion, which is kind of a funny number. Um, so people were skeptical in 1949 that this was going to happen. And what's interesting about this is that in the time from Kitty Hawk till we put someone on the moon, the time it has taken since then, when Neil Armstrong said one small step, et cetera, to now is a longer time. So we actually- We're a further distance from 69 than 69 was from Kitty Hawk. Unless I'm, unless my fingers aren't working today, and I'm not counting right, which there was an no, I'm multiplying I instead of in a No, I think I think that's right. That's yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, that. So another way to look at that is so how much progress have we made in you know aeronautics from '69 yeah. to now? Not much, well, considering yeah. we went from not being able to fly to landing somebody on the moon. That's a good point, Lee. Well, I think in, if Wait. in 1969, if you ask the question, do you think within the next 50 years we're going to be exploring other planets? 
the answer probably would have been sure. We yeah. just got to the moon. Why not? You know, I think it's I think it's interesting because uh, it's it's funny to have a question that actually proves uh, Kevin's point that people are pretty bad at predicting the future. Um, but uh, you know, in 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 1949, we're just uh, we're just a couple of years out from the end of World War II, and I guess the moon seemed very, 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 very far away. I just take issue with the wording, the question wording. Well, men, men. man, go to yes, the moon. Yes, I saw that. That's, saw that's that. my issue. Although yeah. women have been in space, women haven't been to the moon. So, you know. Excellent point, Jay. If they had and said, I'm still, and as I always say, I'm still waiting for flying cars. You, you and Judy Jetson. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Pola at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy our free online learning portal accessible from our website. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at Marist Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub. And with any luck, it will cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as it's released. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time. Stop it!